I do not believe the world's going to end this year. I don't think it'll end before at least 2023. And if it doesn't end in 2023, I think there will be seven true generations, not the way the boomers count them, seven true generations till the end of the world. Now, I don't actually think that. I have no idea because the text says we don't know. But I know that I'd rather think about what it means for the seventh generation of my family to be Christians when Jesus comes back than be worried about whether the world's going to end at the same time that the United States collapses, which is what most people are doing right now. They're confusing a very interesting tremor in our political system. We all know it's kind of something. We've got a bunch of stories about what it is. Let me suggest to you, it is the mythology of America. It's got a little crack, and it should, because at one point, it's a lie. And I'll tell you when it's a lie. It's a lie when it's convinced you that you can control when you're going to die. That's when America's become a lie to you. I pledge allegiance to the flag, one republic, under God, and I'll be safe. Because America. Now, if you talk to me anytime I'm not in this pulpit, you will find out I'm like, <laughs> I am the most Second Amendment ishy, America, freedom, let's go, constitutionalist kind of guy. But I also don't do that blindly. I do it knowing that my God is a monarchist. I was just born a citizen of a country that threw off their monarch. So I'm going to be a good citizen in that country. Because that's what God says to do, even if you're a slave. So I'm going to be a good constitutional Christian. Until God decides it's not going to work anymore. And he puts us back under a tyranny, a monarchy, a fatherhood, however you want to look at, a hierarchy. It's always the same thing. The one unique thing about the U.S. in history is we made sure we could see the guy and get close to him for a while. And that's what is not the case anymore, you're finding out, right? If you need your politicians, where are they? Can they be reached? Have you tried? But we don't live in a state where it would matter, I suppose. There's people right now fighting stuff. Now, I'm not telling you we should or we shouldn't. I'm telling you we've been snookered. We've been snookered since the 40s by a grand idea called America won the war and we are the future of the world and peace. Now look, I would like to help make America a part of a world filled with more peace. But I do not believe the idea of America is going to do that because my God has said that won't happen. In fact, he said every time that a national power rises to such an extent that it will be able to become the Tower of Babel, He's going to crash it down or he's going to end the world. Now, I don't think we're anywhere near any of that, actually. I think we're just sort of in a two-bit aftershock from the fall of the British Empire in a millennium-long historical narrative I could tell you about, but who reads history? And why would you care? And why would I be right? I'm just one guy. I'm just one guy. But Jesus is not just one guy. So what I'm going to tell you next is not my opinion, even though any number of things I just said could be. 
Although I'd like to think that most of that was just common sense. Most of it. But what Jesus says, first and foremost, Matthew 24, verse 36, answering the question, the end of the age, the end of the world, when will it be? Verse 36, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. If you can't believe that, you should just shut your Bible and stop reading it. Concerning the day or the hour, nobody knows. This is a good thing. This is for our benefit. Not even the Son knows. Why would Jesus not know? How could Jesus not know? We've had theologians that are so bored with their lives. They lived in such ease, such so contempt. In the last 500 years, people who figured out how to work the system of the laity and really get priesthood up, live with such ease that they would debate whether or not this was even true. But Jesus had to know, or it shows that Jesus really wasn't God, and the early Christians knew it, and he became a God idea later. That's the argument they make. It's pathetic. Try this one on for size. God the Father says to God the Son in the eternal, unbegotten to begotten counsel that we never get to be privy to. Check it out. Yeah, Dad, what's up? I got the most awesome thing ever. Really? All right, cool. What's it? What is it? Well, I can't tell yet. You're going to have to forget some of what you know. For how long? Well, long enough to die on the cross, come back, but it'll be better afterwards. Sure, let's do it. Here we go. That's it. Jesus bought into being a human, which meant humiliating himself enough to trust God. And that's why he doesn't know. He's living the greatest adventure there ever was. He is God. Can't lift a finger to attack but can say anything he wants, is guaranteed to win the game and still gets to play the game. Sounds good to me. I like that idea. I would that my father would give that to me. And you know what, Christian? He has, because you're part of Jesus. And Christianity is that reality breaking into this world against stories like the one we've all believed a bit too much of again. It's not that small government's bad. It's not that King George was great. None of that. What's going to go forward here and what Jesus says is that no nation, no power will stand. None of them. Not if he doesn't return. And the certainty that they fall is their confidence that they can't fall. We should always be aware of that. But we should never confuse their falling with the actual end of the world. But now I get ahead of myself. I want to review here. So remember, Matthew 24 and 25. The most essential text to understanding eschatology or the study of the end times, Matthew 24, 25, is Jesus answering three very specific questions asked by his disciples at a very specific place after some time between something he said at a different very specific place, which was disturbing to them. That was during Holy Week coming out of the temple, the highest pinnacle of that area of civilization and maybe all ancient civilization. It was built by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an awful guy. He killed babies like some other politicians. Um, but you remember that uh, you remember him because of that. He did many great things. He built coliseums and again, restored the Jewish temple. He wasn't even a Jew. He restored the Jewish temple to what was perhaps bigger than Solomon's time. And Solomon's time was a wonder of the ancient world. And here they are, this little band of fishermen and a tax collector and a couple of others with this guy who's the son of a carpenter. And we don't need, well, maybe, you know, and, and all that. But they're convinced he can do miracles and he's going to do something to make the 
coming of their religion happen at that temple, which means that from that spot, they're going to rule the world. And they say, let's look at it directly. Chapter 24. His disciples came to point out to him the buildings. They don't even tell us what he said. Matthew, who was there, the tax collector, says that Jesus said, oh, you look, see all these stones, do you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now imagine me right now preaching that underneath the Statue of Liberty. Running around with a sign, John 3.16, the end is coming. There's not a single piece of this that will not be thrown down. I'd actually be telling the truth. If you're upset, it's because you're just afraid to win, right? And again, it betrays us a little bit. What, what have we trusted in? I'd rather defend the Statue of Liberty against those who would see enslavement through things like 40% usury, like the state of Delaware has. State of Delaware. Weird. Anyway, you can follow that one on your own. Jesus says it's all going to come down, this ancient thing. They're bothered by that. If I were saying this about the Statue of Liberty, you'd be bothered by that. And if you trusted me, you'd ask me why I said it, which is what they do. So after they leave that Temple Mount and they go down and they come back up, to the other side of the Kidron Valley, which looks across a valley then, this Mount of Olives, across the valley at Jerusalem, surrounded by mountains, unassailable by armies. Jesus is there, and they come, and they ask him these three questions. You'll hear them in verse 2. No, I'm sorry. You'll hear them in verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. Disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? One. What will be the sign of your coming? Two, and of the end of the age. Well, I think three. We can debate that point. Is it two or three? But certainly, for the first half of Matthew 24, he then talks about those days. He's very specific. In those days, in those days, in those days. We did this all last week. It's all about the fall of the temple, which he just talked about, which they're asking, when's it going to happen? And he gives them some signs. He even talks about Daniel's abomination of desolation, and he gives them some instructions. Leave the city. Christians did it. We know that from history. Christians should do that. When they see pagans making sacrifices of human beings like next door, you're allowed to move to a different country. You can do it. That's what Jesus says in that first section. But then, second question, right? What will be the sign of your coming? That's verse 36. That day. Not those days, but that day. No one knows. Yeah. But then also, this, what is this question really getting at? The sign of your coming and of the end of the age. I liken that earlier to what his kingdom would be like. Because then what you see is after our text today in Matthew 24, where he gives some very specific answers about you not knowing what it will be like, but how we should all be concerned about it and pay attention as if it's going to be any moment. He then will give three parables, which we won't go into today. Uh, the parable of the ten virgins, uh, the parable of, I'm going to lose the middle one, the talents, there it is, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. All of these try to explain that rather than try to pin the tail on when this will be, you should be more concerned about who you are today in Christ. And confidently so. This sermon is not meant to scare his apostles. It is meant to convict them. Even enrage them in a good way. Give them courage, you might say. So then, back to verse 36 to actually get into it. Where'd he go? That's chapter 25. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days, verse 38, before the flood came, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's like parable number one, with the next section being a parable based on that. But parable number one, when I say parable, I don't mean Noah wasn't real. I mean, he's giving you a story now about what life will be like when he comes back. But the story is to show you how you won't be able to tell the difference from every other time there ever was. But it does show you some of the things that will never stop, which means they're the kinds of things you'd want to build upon if you cared about being here for a while. (laughs) What was it? Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Now, we assume all those things are happening. We assume all those things are going on. But if you pay attention, actually, marriage has been on the decline significantly so for quite a while, having kids too. The numbers show that by 2050, the world population will peak and then we'll enter a, a significant free fall that will not reach its trough until uh, 2100. And basically, if you can imagine all the infrastructure that moves food, say, from Mexico to our grocery stores, might just have a few less truckers around. And how does that work with you know, global networks of computer science and all that? Well, that's what everyone's arguing about right now. Huh? Uh, what should you be worried about? Well, eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage. You're allowed to care about those things, but the rest of it, you don't really know much else. Suddenly the world ends. Noah goes in the ark, it's over. And they're all swept away because something was different about them. And that's where then verses 40 and 41 need to be understood, that there's a difference between Christians and non-Christians. So that two men can be in a field doing the same job all day for the same employer, the same tyrant even. And at the judgment day, they will not be facing the same judgment because one's a Christian and one's not. And the same for the woman grinding at the mill. mill. Now, most people probably haven't heard it said that way before in this text. If you're watching online, you probably have heard it said this is the rapture. Um, you've only been told one story of about three options, and I disagree with that one. So um, the, the rapture is nowhere in this whatsoever. What is here is the recognition that you cannot tell a true Christian from a hypocrite, even in the midst of the life that we're going to live on the day that Jesus returns. You cannot judge the church in Jesus' place. You must wait for him to do so. So then, from there, what should you do instead? Instead of trying to make a perfect world where every person in the field does it exactly the way they're supposed to, instead, he says, stay awake because you don't know what day or hour your Lord is coming. Stay awake. Watch. Now, we'll get into that a little more. Paul's going to use the stay awake language. I'm just going to leave that for now. But then Jesus gives us a parable. Again, I think it's the second or third one now. But know this, verse 33, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. The parable is clear enough, right? I mean, if someone told you, guaranteed, you got to think like Western world though, right? Like, Like back when you could shoot someone on your property because they were attacking you and you weren't worried about it, or you didn't have police, and so you would have to shoot them if they attacked you. So you're living on the... You know, little house in the prairie days, right? And, you, and your neighbor says, there's thieves coming. You're in the area. And in fact, I, I, saw, their, I saw their map and they're going to come to your house on this time at this time. What are you going to do? Well, you're going you're gonna to get ready for them somehow, right? Get a posture. Whatever you got to do, you're going to be ready to meet the thief. But the point of the thief in the night talk 
is Jesus is saying, no one's going to be doing that. <laughs> Nobody else is going to be ready for him to come back at all. Everyone else is going to be going on like normal. And we are to be like that person who got the message. Oh, we know he's coming soon. We know we should always be awake and watchful. That we never set down the need to guard, keep, and cherish what God has given us. Now, I had this thought this morning, actually, as I picked up this, this Bible. This is a large print English Standard Version Edition Bible. Uh, this was purchased for use in our Bible study that we may get back to someday. We'll see what the Lord allows in terms of social gatherings uh, under our overseers at the moment. But uh, as I was flipping through this so I could read the Matthew text to you this morning in a little bit larger print, I realized how callously we've thought of this, these books, these Bibles, and what a blessing it's been that God has printed and printed and printed and printed and printed these. Now, I know you can't imagine electricity going away. I can't either. But it's a worthwhile thought experiment. What's it worth? Because right now they're printing less things. So right now there's a superabundance of these Bibles lying around. And in 50 years, there won't be. How long until he comes back? What if it is seven generations? How do we even know we're going to have the Bibles around? Well, we just assume it's going to be here. Why? The flag. That's why. And that's where it's rough. It's not against the flag. No idol's bad by itself. It's, it's bad because you worship it. The crucifix is not bad until you worship it and treat it as something that is, well, is Jesus. Because it's not. It just focuses your attention on the guy who really was and is Jesus. So every idol is the inversion of something good. And you can idolize your country very easily. Most people do it. Most kings know to have your country work, you need a civil religion. You need a religion everybody believes in. That's one of the things that makes the U.S. unique, by the way. Freedom of religion. Can it work? Well, that's the open experiment, isn't it now? Any case, I may have tangented there a bit. But let's get back into, ah, uh, yes, the thief coming at night and you being awake. I love the image of that thief breaking into my house and I'm sitting there. I can see him kind of moving in the dark. He's picking in this. He's picking in that. Before I flip the light on, I'm going to go, Ch -ch -ch, and the light's going to go on. I'll be sitting there with my feet up pointing the shotgun at him, right? That's the idea of who you want to be as a Christian waiting for Jesus. You want to catch Jesus with a shotgun, but it's not a shotgun. You're not going to shoot him. He's like, hey, hey, I knew it was soon. That's it. And if it's not soon, well, what he says earlier about not knowing the day or the hour, you might want to understand that even though all the Christians who've come before us and fallen asleep in the faith died without seeing their Lord come upon them on the last day, well, they really still didn't know the day or the hour of the judgment they would face as soon as they died, which thankfully is a good one. You're innocent, you're with Jesus, all that. But right, the day or the hour that you face God, nobody knows no matter what. So if he doesn't come back, it's just going to be your death. So again, let's put this into the, like, like the worst scenario possible. Let's say that right now, the mom and dad fighting in America over who gets to count the votes <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I have to laugh because we're just so trapped, people. We can do nothing. And we just have to let them fight. Uh, let's imagine this collapses everything. 
Let's pray it doesn't. But imagine for a second it does. And let's say that instead of by December and Advent and Advent by candlelight bonfire, there's a raging war going on in Chicago and D.C. and a bunch of other places like that. Let's say that that breaks out at the same time that on the other side of the planet where India and Pakistan have not been friends for a long time and China's influence is struggling to maintain its pressure over the world to show how great it is in the fall of the corona stuff, just like us. And so Pakistan and India go at it with nuclear warheads. Can you see how it could spiral? And suddenly, boom, 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 bam, 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 we're in some crazy, crazy thing where the world's about to end. Because in the meantime, the pagans have come out from Oregon, where they are, in fact, worshiping demons in secret. They're probably in the cities already. And they're hurting up Christians this year. They're going to they're gonna stab us all in one. They hurt us in one thing in the middle of Rockford. Or maybe they come in, they hurt us up in this pile right now. They're going to shoot us all. But it's the actual end of the world. It's not just you dying and going to be with Jesus. It's the actual end of the world. It's happening all over the world to everybody. Worst thing that happens then is, well, Jesus comes back and you don't feel it. Second thing that happens then is Jesus doesn't come back. It's not the end of the world. You're still at the resurrection. And the point of all of this is, if you want to imagine a worst-case scenario, you should, in order to tell yourself it's meaningless and then read your Bible again and walk on. You don't have to go as deep as my crazy head goes. You should do it with your life and where you are. And that's why you're here, right? But again, we need more of this. Wake up. Which myth are you listening to? Who's the master of your house? Hmm. Rest of the text, the Lord willing. You must be ready, 44, 45. So we have another parable, faithful servant, wise servant. One's doing the right thing, one's doing the wrong thing. What should you be, sheep or goat? How? Here it is. The faithful servant is giving food to the other servants. He will be set over more servants. He is blessed. That's it. The faithful servant gives food to other servants. It's just the seventh commandment, which isn't only don't steal, it's share. And Christians who are living in a time of trial and struggle, a time likened to the end of the world being worse than any time before, well, they would indeed be striving to bring food to other people. That's what we would do, I would hope, as a congregation. Just locally. Get right on it. Get it done. Huh? But... Giving food is more than just physical food. It's also the food of the word of God, which ultimately then, this particular text, is about me and what your pastor should be doing when Jesus comes back. Now, he better be feeding the sheep what the scriptures say and not some nonsense about who he thinks the world power is. You see what a thin line I walk then. This threatens me. It makes me afraid. I must tell you the truth. I must make you watch the scriptures and not them. And they are gods right now in terms of getting you to pay attention. They are gods. The box turns your heads and you listen. And I agree, it's entertaining. <laughs> but you need this right now. Because then what's the wicked servant say? There's all the bit about him getting cut in two or in pieces. Both of those are rather disgusting to imagine. They're very Assyrian, by the way. The Assyrian Empire maintained peace for like... 1,000 to 1,500 years. Like, we're at 200. We're not really doing so good right now. 1,000 to 1,500 years. The way they did it was brutality. They put a hook in the nose of your king and drag him away if he resisted. Okay. Well, they would also then cut you in pieces. But now, this isn't the Assyrians here. 
This is Jesus saying again in verse chapter 24, verse 50, that the master of the servant who's wicked will come back to what makes you wicked. The master of the servant who's wicked will come on a day when he does not expect, thief in the night, same idea. Hour he does not expect, he will cut him in pieces. Put him with the two-faced people, the hypocrites, those who pretend. In, play, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Usually that is hell, fire, language, and talk. Now what I want you to get out of that is, who is this talking right now? Who is this master? One of my seminary professors who I, I think was a very wise man, he taught me many things. He once made a joke about Greek. And it was about John's Greek as opposed to, say, Luke's Greek. It's the kind of joke only pastors could make. But I think I can get you to see the point. Basically, Luke's Greek's really hard. And John's Greek's pretty easy and as, as far as Greek goes, right? Um, so he was talking about John kind of like this. Like, see Jesus. See Jesus love. Love Jesus. Love, right? Um, I actually think that's who we think Jesus is, though. Or that's who we think Jesus is. Because this is what Jesus does when he loves. He says, I'm going to come and cut in half everybody who's not a Christian. Oh, you should tell them, by the way, I don't really want to. It reminds me a bit of Genghis Khan. I'm fascinated with this guy. Um, He, I think, was quite a wicked man. I really do. But he was also very, very open to honesty. And he figured out how to unite the tribes uh, up in Mongolia in ways they had never been able to do. He put together what amounted to a super force because at the time, to be able to shoot from the back of a horse, a bow on target, coming and going, which they could, they just could never unite, that was like super technology. And so they sent like a raiding band over the Himalayas into the kind of the Southeast Byzantine Empire, a small raiding band wipes out like three or four kingdoms and goes back to say, hey, easy pickings. The t- people on the other side, they think that's all it was. They're like, wow, we endured like this amazing thing. They'll, hopefully they'll never come back. And then Genghis Khan and the Khans come back and they get all the way to Spain. It's just crazy. When Genghis Khan runs into some of the northern and central Byzantine, these are Christian and then what we would call heterodox or heretical Christian, Nestorian, various things like that. Christians in the East, these are kingdoms in the Middle Ages. Uh, think like our Western Middle Ages with the Pope, only they're far more spread out and probably a lot more money, a lot more wisdom. Uh, the Ar- Arabic influence of uh, ancient literature was, was flowing up into these regions, but very, very uh, soft, I guess you might say. Um, and in this way, certainly liberal with regard to their own Christianity, having come to believe that their kingdoms, which they had in Byzantium out of Constantine, were going to last forever. So can you imagine when Genghis Khan sends messages or gets envoys and sends back messages to them saying, just so you know, I've already heard about your God, Jesus. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like this, okay? I've heard about your God, Jesus. I've got the Bible. And what I understand is that you're not doing what it says. And it looks like I'm the one that's supposed to come and kill you all. So get ready or repent and submit to me. And every city that repented to Genghis Khan lived and became part of the Khan Empire, which was what made China is what it is today. And every city that did not, everybody was killed. Men, women, children. It was brutal. It was horrifying. Everyone who lived went into a, a golden age of roads and trade and spice. 
What do you think of Genghis Khan? Well, historian that I am, I would judge him as a brutal murderer, like a Hitler who got it done, actually. Scary and sad. And yet sometimes God makes these beasts rise up to punish. Now, thankfully, the beast of the U.S. rose up to punish the beast of Hitler. But when Assyria rose up to punish northern Israel and said, ha-ha, we have done it ourselves, what did God do? Well, he sent Babylon and the Persians and a bunch of others at Assyria. Bam, 1,500-year empire, gone overnight. really was. He can do it if he wants to. You don't want it to happen in the U.S.? Pray. <laughs> Speaking of which, Thanksgiving, right? Pray for your country. All right, so did I get through the end of the chapter? Yes, I did. No, but we got to talk about the wicked servant, and then we'll jump to why you're not a wicked servant in Paul. Verse 48, if the wicked servant saying to him, says to himself, my master is delayed. That's it. My master is delayed. Everything that he does comes out of his belief that his master won't come back before he's dead. That's it. And I say, checkmate, America. <laughs> checkmate, America. We deserve every bit we're getting right now. We thought we were going to live longer than Jesus coming back. And we really believe it as the church. I don't think we do anymore. Thank God. It's a gift. Like Job. It's never to break you. It's always to raise you. It's always to make you stronger. Whatever the tremor is in the U.S., we're going to be stronger as a congregation. We're going to be stronger as a community because we're going to know what life's about. Marrying, giving in marriage, eating and feasting together and waiting for Jesus to come back. And not forgetting that the stories men tell are that you're going to live here forever. Learn how to smell that rot. Dig it out and be ready to die. Frankly, I mean, I don't know. I was raised on TV. Everything about death sounds bad. And every movie I've ever watched where I want to be the hero, he dies. I want to be the hero who dies in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ah, but we haven't even gotten to... First Thessalonians, where are we at? 30 minutes. We got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. I will not go quite as long on this, though. But you, um, uh, you know, have a little break for me uh, this week. Um, Wednesday evening, Pastor Matthew Utenreuther, I think that's how I pronounce his name, will be a, a guest with us. So I'll be with you in the pew that evening. Um, and then next week, also, Pastor Cypress will be here. I think because we're here rather than traveling, we're going to come to that service as well. So we'll hopefully see you all next week. But uh, let me preach for next week, too, while I'm, I'm here, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> First Thessalonians 5, most of this we're going to move through quickly in that he's just saying you're not going to know when. You know, I don't have to write you to tell you it'll come like a thief in the night. That's the only thing we've ever really said. I'm pretty convinced if you track back to like, or, or try to figure out what was the first thing they were repeating from Jesus about the end of the world that got repeated over and over again. It's the phrase, it will be like a thief in the night. And I think that's true because it shows up all over the New Testament in other places. It's repeated by Paul. You already know thief in the night's the creed on this matter. That's what we should believe on this matter. So, again, but what does that mean? So close to what Jesus said. No, days of Noah. People saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. You see how this parallels Matthew 24 and what Jesus said. It's the same track of thought. One thing to think about here, and this is definitely my opinion. It's actually my question. It's my question. In Lutheranism, 
We have always, I think, assumed that before Jesus returns, it will be worse in some way as an echo of the collapsing of all things. There are Christians who teach that it will get better until he comes back and reigns here, fulfilling a millennium here before the end of the world. I reject that outright, as do all Lutherans who subscribe to our confessions. What I've never heard anyone talk about is why we assume it's actually going to be worse and not just pretty good. Like not, not like to forever and everyone's worshiping Jesus, but like there's a lot of people worshiping Jesus. There's a lot of healthy civilization going on. And the reason I ask that is because in both of these texts, when he describes the days of Noah, it doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound like wars and rumors of wars and lava and starfire. It sounds like just kind of normal. So I'm pondering this. What does it mean? It means you don't know the day or the hour. That's the point, right? But then you are not in darkness, brothers, to be surprised. This is the same thing we just talked about, right? If the guy knows when the thief is coming, he won't be surprised by it. Now, this language here I want to spend time on. This is not as much an echo of what Jesus said in, in Matthew 24. Verse 5 says, you are all huioi, huioi of light, huioi of the day. Uh, there's no question that Greek word means one thing, a baby with a penis. It's what it means. We live in a time when people don't like to distinguish between men and women, and they've been preparing us for this for a long time. They've been changing our Bible under our noses. Some pastors have been yelling about it, but usually we get shamed into quietness. I'm not ashamed anymore. <laughs> uh, it, it should not say children. It's, it's actually demonic to do this, I think. It should say sons. Specifically because you women in the room are being called sons and it's been stolen from you. You could even think of yourself that way. That's feminism for you. Not really helping you. Another myth. Another myth. You are not children of the night, sons of the night. You are sons of the light. Sons of the day. This means every Christian, regardless of your vocation or your stand or your intellectual ability are an heir to the resurrecting daylight that's about to just wipe through the world, burning all of it down, but not burning you. It will reveal you. And then the creation that comes on the other side will be like, yes, we've been waiting for this. Sons of the day. Sons of the light. It doesn't mean you're not a woman or a man now. It doesn't mean you won't reflect who where you are now then. But it does mean that Jesus Christ has justified all with an egalitarian justification. And that's why it matters to distinguish the sexes among a million other reasons you're learning about just because you're watching it happen around you and we don't. <laughs> we'll talk plenty about that in the years to come, I'm sure. You are children. You are sons. Yeah, you are sons of the light, sons of the day. You're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, he says, this parable about sleeping and drinking. This isn't a moralizing on whether or not it's good or bad to have alcohol or to sleep. And if you come into it that way, you're going to bump up your conscience a whole bunch. There are places that say, do not become so intoxicated you can't think and walk. That's something you should not do as a Christian, right? But this isn't that place. And there's no other place that says you're not allowed to sleep. So if you get messed up with the drunkenness in this one and start applying it to your life, you're actually going to end up having to not sleep if you're honest with the text. So don't do that, okay? This is, again, to show that 
Darkness has certain behaviors and light has certain behaviors. In darkness, Paul describes sleeping or drunkenness, both of them being the opposite of what you want to be as a Christian in general, which is watchful. You can't be watchful while you're sleeping. You can't be watchful while you're drunk. Do you notice how people do those things at night? That's a symbol of their evil in his text. That's what he says. Now, it doesn't mean that, again, sleeping is evil, but not watching is evil. And being so under the influence of the world that you're not watching Jesus return, well, that's evil too. That's what he's saying, right? But that's not us. So he exhorts you. Of course, your conscience is going to leave you feeling like you've done this. You're a Christian. You're never going to hear the law and not be like, oh, almost. So don't let that stop you from being encouraged by it then. That trying to achieve it so you can look back on it, that's what's got to die. Who cares if you got there or not? It was a good try and it's the right thing to do, so try again. I mean, really, can you imagine if we applied this, uh, this kind of approach to morality to, say, learning how to do something in sports? My kids teach them to throw a layup. You know, they can't even hit the backboard. Well, you're a bad person. How's that going to help anybody? you got to strengthen them so they can hit the backboard. So what do we do, congregation, in a world where marriage is falling apart, no one's getting married, and no one can stay married? We make sure that everyone who comes in has to be married and well-looking and ready to do and solid to go before they do? No, we don't. We recognize that some of us who have been blessed with long, strong marriages have some wisdom. We should look around and see those who could use our friendship, our kindness, maybe just a smile this morning. I start to welcome real Rockford into our arms because I think they're going to come. And real Rockford's going to be a lot of broken families when they show up. And they're going to need us. Like when you would put a stake beside a, a sapling, right? To help it grow, right? And again, this is what the Ten Commandments are now for you. They're not here to condemn you. They're here to act as a stake beside you as you grow in Christ. Not to condemn you, to show you the way to go. If you judge yourself by them, they will condemn you. So don't judge yourself by them permanently. Judge yourself by Jesus' blood permanently. But then judge your actions by them because you want to grow well, right? Do the good things. Ah, so then, that is to be awake, right? And then the way he describes this in verse 8 is to be sober. So here he kind of gets into this drunken metaphor, not as a morality, but as a distinction between being intoxicated and being level-headed and clear. I went into a, a deep dive on this word sober this week because I thought it was really fascinating. And it's, it is, it, closer to our language is its opposite, which is not the word used for drunk, I don't think here. Um, but its opposite in general of sobriety, the word is methouo, I think. And you can hear it. I mean, we have meth today, right? So he's saying the mind that is out of the control of itself because it's become put under the influence of lies. That's what he's getting at. That's to be drunk. That's to be asleep. The lies have painted such a picture that you are, as you look at your daily life, stumbling like a drunken man, not sure where to go. The less scripture in your life, the more that's guaranteed to be a fact. Straight up. Again, Proverbs is a fast way out, by the way. Get on them. So we belong to the day, so let us exactly get on them. Let us be sober. Notice how he doesn't say, we're all sober. 
Huh? I'm not talking drinking again right now. I'm talking paying attention, watching, caring about your faith growth. Not in such a way to check everybody else's fruit, but be able to beat your breast and say, Lord Jesus, make me better tomorrow than I've been today. And to do it with joy. Don't you want that? That's all I want. That's what sobriety is. And so look at, let us pursue sobriety with the breastplate of faith, the box around your body that nothing can get through, a breastplate that's made of trust in Jesus' resurrection. That's pretty awesome. The breastplate of faith and love. So trust in Jesus' resurrection is going to turn around and become your own righteousness as you serve others. There's both sides, two kinds of righteousness. And then for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you haven't yet found your confirmation verse, like in the last couple of months, if, if you haven't heard me talk about this, I started with just the kids, but I'm kind of pushing it on everybody now. If you haven't found it, I suggest you find it. Um, and I suggest you memorize it. I suggest you say it one time a day. I suggest if you can get yourself to that point, you then have one of the coolest tools for building confidence in the history of the world. And it goes like this. The next time you're not sure about yourself, you just say it out loud. You say your confirmation verse out loud. Take a deep breath while you do it. I guarantee you, even though you might not have the answer to like the test problem on the other side, you can be okay. And you can be confident you know what you're going to do. And think about this too. What I love about this is I've had a number of people say to me, I don't even know my confirmation verse. That's even better. Now you got a quest. It's great. Go find it. What is it? I've told you about mine, how I hated mine. And this year I've learned to love it. I don't belong to myself. I belong to Jesus now. And it's because of that verse. It's because of that verse. I was told by Jesus when I first communed, you're mine. What's yours? Go find that. Use it to stay awake. Use it to be sober. Remember, you are not destined for wrath. That's verse 9. But you've obtained salvation. That's your destiny. Your destiny is not to live your best life now. Your destiny is not to play golf. Your destiny is not to start a business. Your destiny is to die believing in Jesus or to see him appear over the horizon. That's your destiny. God's great stuff. To obtain salvation who already has died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and this is where you can't moralize this thing. It's not about whether you're watching or not. As Paul told us, I think, last week, if you're not watching very hard, don't worry, you will be eventually. <laughs> but for those of us who are watching, let us watch all the more. Huh? Whether we wake or sleep, let's live in him. Encouraging one another and building one another up, one another up, just as you are doing. Yesterday, our men of St. Paul gathering occurred uh, at the Heise Farm. Uh, had about the same number of guys out as the time before, different guys. A beautiful day. Uh, what I was most encouraged about in my time there was something happening that I don't know I've ever experienced at church. And I told, I think I told my wife last night, it was, a, it was the craziest thing. We were at a, a men's mixer. Can you imagine a men going to a mixer on purpose? I, I can't imagine that. And yet it's what happened. I watched it. We all talked to everybody individually over the course of three hours. It was beautiful. We all encouraged each other. We felt better about it. And we, we all went on our way. We'll do another one in December. At least Mike and I will be there even if it's snowing. So you're welcome to join. Uh, it's for men because we need a place to distinguish the sexes. We have to do it. We have to distinguish. So ladies, I've heard it said, where's ours? Okay, you got one or maybe even two that became one during COVID, but you got one already. Now they meet during the day. Real problem. In other congregations I've been in where there's one ladies group that meets during the day and there are women in a different stage of life that can't meet at that time, 
to start a second one. And usually we all understand it's just about timing. Yeah? And it's a lot easier to just do your own planning than try to coordinate. And I could foresee even a third group here if you ladies really wanted it to, because there's a homeschooling community just waiting to happen right here. We just have one. And we just haven't acknowledged it yet. So we have three levels, ladies, that you can all do things that you need. And if you really want to just talk about that, what does that mean? I know my wife's been thinking about it for a while. She's certainly not going to manage everything, nor am I. But I think the Lord's going to keep blessing the growth that we're seeing in our minds, in our hearts, as we believe the real story that he has risen, that you are paid for, uh, that you are immortal now, that he won't be long anyway, that the water seals it, that the bread and wine are him. He's going to feed it, that this is Christianity. And, uh, well... If he's not back by next week, we're going to be here doing this again, yes? Uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen.